Welcome back, everyone, to the Living Streams podcast. I'm Brandon, and today I'm joined by Gary and Melissa Ingram of Love and Truth Network. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Yeah, so I've been super excited to have you on. I've known that you're going to be one of my guests for a long time now, even before we even started the podcast. I had you guys in mind for um, guest appearing on, on the show, so I'm super stoked that this is actually happening. Um, Melissa, you just spoke um, a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. um, for the other hours, and then you both spoke on um, the topic of the origins of innocence in mm-hmm. the fall. And that I know that caused a lot of stir. Everyone was super, super excited about everything that you brought to the table during that conversation. So I'm, I'm really, really glad that we're able to kind of dive in a little bit deeper on your message most recently and then the one that you guys both um, brought in uh, in September, October, or something like that. Yeah, so, yes, right. sounds good. Sounds good. Well, um, just to start off, I would love to kind of hear a little bit more about um, about your ministry, about love and truth, and uh, kind of what the main message is that you guys want to um, to put out there for the church. Um, and then if you wouldn't mind just diving a little bit deeper on just the journey that, you, that kind of brought you to a place where you wanted to start this, um, this uh, ministry. Sure. So I'll share a little bit about the ministry, and then you can jump in on your story a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Love and Truth Network was formed about five years ago. Okay. I was on pastoral staff for 12 years in upstate New York, and really feeling uh, toward the end of that time that God was um, really moving us out of that role uh, into reaching out to the church, uh, the broader church, on how to help leaders develop environments, and that's a key word, environment, not just mm-hmm. that they do a program or um, address the topic of sexuality or sexual brokenness once a year, but really develop environments that are both safe but also transformational. And so in looking at statistics, I mean, it's shocking uh, the kind of uh, sexual addiction that's going on mm-hmm. in the church. And and then we also, because of our backgrounds, bring in the LGBTQ piece uh, to the conversation too. And so the main emphasis of our ministry isn't so much about working with individuals, although we love that. I do some mentoring and obviously Melissa's a licensed counselor, but it's in working with leaders and churches uh, to help them develop those environments. Because frankly, if the church is doing what the church needs to do in this area, church is doing some great things and we love the church, but if the church were doing what it needs to in this area, um, the sexual and relational brokenness would be um, much reduced in the church. So we feel like that's our purpose as a ministry. That's awesome. And I really, um, I came to Christ out of a very broken place, which I think the majority of us do uh, when we recognize our need um, for Jesus. But I didn't really start to grow in my faith and in my relationship with Christ until I became part of a church and until I became part of a community of faith. And really, it was um, getting some specific help for my sexual brokenness. Mm -hmm. Um, I had come out of a lesbian relationship. I was still experiencing same-sex attraction. I didn't know what to do with that. I felt a lot of shame about that. So going through Living Waters and um, experiencing healing for really some of the root root reasons why I, I struggled in that way and, and really just more broadly um, idolize people. I mean, really that was the, the, the core issue was looking to other people to, to tell me who I was instead of God. And when I was able to get involved in a small group in the church and people really began to know me not just my brokenness, but what really what God was walking me through, that's when I began to experience um, greater freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and really, that's when, when God began to say, you know what, this is, this is actually what I'm calling you to do, wow. is to help other people find freedom in the area of sexual and relational wholeness. So we, um, we met at a Living Waters training um, Living Waters is. So Living Waters is a 20-week program that deals with uh, the roots of all types of sexual and relational okay. brokenness. And it incorporates worship, teaching, and listening prayer, mm-hmm. um, really allowing people to experience God in um, places of wounding, places of sin, places of shame. Um, yeah, and it involves confession and forgiveness and 
healing of memories. I mean, all kinds of really good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so we met in 2004 and realized pretty quickly, not really quickly, but maybe like a year later that, oh, uh, yeah, so not quickly at all, actually. Not quickly at all. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, we're both called to the same area of ministry. And we kind of like each other. Yeah. yeah. So that, that'll be 12 years ago when yeah. we got married in uh, September. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very cool. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that you guys have not only um, gone through the past that you have, and we'll dive a little bit deeper on, on your own personal stories at some point during this conversation, but then have also formed a ministry around taking an area of brokenness that's oftentimes seen as an area of shame mm-hmm. or weakness for many people, and have kind of turned that around in, uh, into a ministry that is now touching countless lives. And so it's really, really exciting to me that the church has a hard time with this topic of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I think even in our last podcast, we kind of jumped into that and we're just saying like, it's unfortunate that there's kind of that attitude where it's like, all right, everyone, bu- you know, like buckle up. We're about to dive in on a conversation mm-hmm. on sexuality as if it's something that's um, totally separate from the rest of the conversation we have in the church the rest of the year. And right. I know, Gary, you brought that up a few seconds ago where you were just like, you know, we may talk about it once, twice a year mm-hmm. during the, in the church and it's kind of over in the corner and it's not really incorporated into um, the regular conversation yes. in Christendom. And so I think it's kind of exciting that this is what you've dedicated your lives to is, is bridging that gap between the mm. conversation about sexuality and the church at large. Yeah. So um, kind of what, what's been the thing that, I mean, obviously you saw some sort of uh, need. There's obviously a need there. Um, how, what was that process like in recognizing the need in the church and then uh, realizing that you're called to, to fill that need? Well, so what I'm reminded of as you ask that question is we really appreciate Dr. Julie Slattery's mm-hmm. work. She was with Focus on the Family for a number of years, and she co-founded an organization called Authentic Intimacy. Okay. And I know Melissa, when she was teaching a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually quoted from her book, uh, Rethinking Sexuality. Okay. And so one of the things that, um, that Dr. Julie Slattery talks about is this idea, she kind of coined the phrase, sexual discipleship, mm-hmm. and that that's something we should be doing in the church. Like, it should be the most, the most common thing in the world. Uh, and another thing that I heard her say at a conference where we were co-teaching um, is that she, um, in the in our current cultural in our current culture, it's impossible to fulfill the Great Commission um, without addressing sexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean that's a paraphrase of what she said, but that's right. what I took away from that. It really stuck with me that uh, absolutely we we do need to. I mean in the in the culture that we're living, in the mm-hmm. times that we're living. These are some of the most defining issues of our time, some of the most divisive issues of our time. And so what we tend to see are either you know people pulling completely in one direction and, and, and embracing something called sexual freedom, which ultimately leads to sexual slavery and bondage, mm-hmm. um, but it's cast as a, as a positive thing initially, or kind of mm-hmm. the traditional approach of the church, which is we don't talk about it, or if we do, it's shameful. Right. And, and, um, and what we're saying is, oh my goodness, no, the reason we named our ministry Love and Truth Network is the church really needs to, and we as Christians need to know how to engage walking in the tension. I don't mean like the word balance, but walking yeah. in the tension of those two mm. realities. I mean, in one sense, you can't take one from the other and still have the other, but there's another way in which you, we can kind of look at it as, as walking in, in this day. If we're going to do this well, we're kind of walking a razor's edge mm. in, in living in the tension of love and truth on, right. on the topics of sexuality. And so we just, we felt like, and at one time, this is the most shameful stuff in my life. I wouldn't want anyone to know about it. Um, I wouldn't. I, I I I lived in hiding about these things, you know. And so the fact that God has chosen, just amazing. I mean, it's so godlike. But the fact that He's chosen to take the weak things of the world and the foolish uh, to confound the supposed wisdom of the world again is just like Him. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I love how you brought up that idea of sexual discipleship because that's definitely. It sounds like not something we talk about a whole lot in the church, but I would love to kind of hear what that means in a more more practical way. Um, So, so, I mean, you can address this if you'd like, Melissa. Mm -hmm. What what is sexual discipleship? How does it work? How can that be incorporated into the conversation we're having as a church? Yes. So sexual discipleship, from what Dr. Slattery was describing, and and it's the idea of discipleship in general, right, Mm -hmm. is that we integrate Mm -hmm. what we believe with how we actually live. Hmm. And I know for many Christians, really on a variety of issues, we we know what the Bible says about certain things, 
And yet the way we're living our lives is not showing hmm. that we actually believe what the Bible says. For example, um, be angry and do not sin. This is one of the things I have trouble with right. <laughs> having um, children and being, you know, probably in my flesh naturally impatient. I can tend to get angry pretty easily. And so I know that anger is a sin. I know that impatience is not a fruit of the spirit. And so um, if I'm being discipled, and, and that means actually whether that's a, a person that's helping me um, or I'm learning by actually applying what the word says mm. to my life, and, and that should impact how I live. So when we talk about sexual discipleship, what we're really saying is first, we need to know what we believe. And so that's where uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was really trying to make it clear, um, what does the Bible say? Not so much about homosexuality in particular, but all sexual sin, like what's right. okay, what's not, um, why is it important? Um, because honestly, there's been so much, uh, so many other messages about sexuality and even identity that there are, um, Christians who who don't actually they haven't really thought through what they believe right. about yeah. about God's design for sexuality, which is really one man and one woman um, in in marriage forever. That's the ideal. Um, not everyone's going to get married. We understand that. We know the reality of living with desires that um, conflict with that, and uh, so everyone you know is going to experience we would hope that and we know that jesus is still in the business of changing lives so we're always hopeful that people can experience more and more freedom from whatever their disordered desires are um and so knowing what we believe and then actually being able to walk that out and be able to pass it on like the idea right. of discipleship is that we're actually helping others follow jesus mm -hmm. and and to live like jesus so a couple of things I'd just add to that as well, <clears throat> and fully agree with that, would be that, so sexual discipleship uh, begins early on, when as parents, for example, we really believe uh, not in, in talking about things that are obviously age inappropriate, although right. kids are getting that stuff all the time these days, right? I mean, it, depending on the environments that they're in, um, sex is being pushed and, and, and identity um, mm -hmm. issues in a particular perspective mm -hmm. is being pushed even in the lower grades. So, so they're getting at that, unfortunately. And so parents have to, in many ways, uh, respond to that. But we believe, certainly, that regardless of, of that happening, that we need to, we want to engage with our kids in uh, a long conversation over time, not the conversation that they wind up in a counseling office right. later on, the you know, down the line, like, oh my gosh, this is the most traumatic thing in the world, you know? Or my dad was driving and I was sitting in the back seat and he's having this weird conversation and, you know, I could have told him a thing or two. I mean, that kind of, we don't want that kind of conversation. We want to lay um, kind of like onion paper, the thinnest, uh, just over and over and over again, lay, put down layer upon layer upon layer in the conversation of hmm. building strong identity, building confidence, um, building a sense that, that it really is safe, like giving them experiences that it's safe to come and, and share things with us that are hard. Yeah. Um, so that's that certainly would be a part of, of of sexual discipleship, relational discipleship in our homes, uh, and we and we think that we've also spoken to youth and churches and and, and had parents there as well, and then had conversation uh, Q and A afterward, and that's a form of discipleship in a sense, but it's more that's more passing along information. Right. But the true discipleship is life on life, right? So for me, when I came out, when I was fresh out of adult bookstores and gay bars um, from Chicago, moving back to New York, and eventually got involved in the church that later on hired me, how crazy are they? Uh, you know, I was, I was a total addict and, and totally broken. And eventually the last place on earth I wanted to be was in a Christian men's group. Like I grew up in the church and I knew what it was like to be shamed and ridiculed by Christian men or pushed out of the world of men altogether in the world of boys. And so inherently that's the, the last place I'd, I'd want to be, but I knew the Lord was prompting me. So I got into this church uh, broken early on um, into counseling, into a small group right away. And months later, I finally buckled, you know, as the Holy Spirit was drawing me and went to the, to the men's group. And it took a while and it was awkward. And, uh, but, but 
um, when they actually mentioned in one of my early meetings the the, uh, the words pornography and masturbation came up. I'm like, what? I'm, are you kidding me? Like, I grew up in church. I never heard uh, yeah. that kind of conversation. Certainly not the M word, for heaven's sake. And I thought, well, my goodness, I guess I stumbled into the right place somehow. Right. And, and so anyway, later, I was able to open up and share with them just my history very quickly and just kind of named it homosexuality and pornography addiction. And, you know, these guys were redneck hicks from the back hills of upstate New York. They didn't have a clue of what to do with me necessarily, but... This is a form of sexual discipleship. They didn't even know what they were doing, uh, that they were doing this. But what some of them, they all pulled me out of my seat and gave me this huge bear hug when, when I uh, shared my, my history. I wasn't expecting that. I was hoping they wouldn't leave the room. And instead, they really embraced me. And mm. they said, we want you here and you belong with us. And some of them actually said, you know, Gary, I don't know what it's like to have same-sex attraction. I don't have that at all, but I know what it's like to have a pornography addiction that I just can't seem to break. Or I know, or it took me a long time to break through. Or I know what it's like to have a marriage that fails because of adultery. Mm-hmm. So so as they were sharing um, their journey, some of it they were still in their mess. Others of them had, had been out of that for a period of time, but they were actually in very practical ways, sexually and relationally discipling me. And I would say in many ways, God used this community of men to refather me. Wow. And so that was a powerful experience of what we're talking about by, by relational and sexual discipleship. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's, uh, it's just kind of, it's awesome and so refreshing to, to hear that is the experience that both of you have had. Because I think we live in a cultural moment where it's undoubtedly the perspective on the church is predominantly negative yes. in terms of the way that we deal with sexuality, specifically uh, dealing with LGBTQ issues. Yes. And so, but both of you coming out of that lifestyle and having experience personally with that community, um, where what where do we need to go from here as a church in order to help bridge that gap to allow um, sexual discipleship to happen? What needs to occur on the part of the church in order to allow that to, to take place? Can I say one quick thing before you jump in and share? Sure. So I think that's really important that we recognize that the church has historically earned a lot of uh, bad credit, essentially, for how we've dealt with this. And some mm-hmm. churches still don't, oftentimes it's not that they're being so nasty, it's that they just don't know what to do and so they're doing nothing uh, these right. days. And um, But what's happened is, the way that the narrative has played out is either you're, you're wildly supportive of sexual freedom, whatever mm-hmm. that might look like, identity, freedom of, of any sorts, that there's literally, I mean, I've read uh, articles where, where people are excited that they've realized there's thousands of genders, you know, so either you're you're on board with that fully or you're automatically painted into the um, into the box of Westboro Baptist, which right. those are any that's anything but what we want to be like or are like. And so what we really believe is the church needs to rise up and show by action. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 they're still going to get bad press. So right. the church can't be afraid of bad press. Okay. Uh, but we have to find that tension again of living in love and truth and doing it in a vocal way. Like I moved from Chicago to New York because I kept hearing about this church that was dealing with really broken people. I would have had no idea if they were so afraid that they wouldn't even put the word out there that they were just dealing with messy people, basically. And so that idea that we need to recognize that we've been painted into a corner and we need to, with love and consistency and, and faithfulness, begin to show that, no, we're, we're not that. We're neither one of those perspectives. We're something, we're, we're living in the tension of what's in between that, and it's a difficult place to be, but we're going to do it by the grace of God. That's awesome. And so the way that we do that, the way that we show um, that we're living in that balance of love and truth is through relationship. Mm-hmm. So when we speak um, to different either churches or leaders or groups of Christians, everyone is, um, they're so uncomfortable like with um, the topic of homosexuality or it feels like the biggest issue in the room. Um, And the reality is the first thing we need to do, and this is true, of anyone that we're trying to get to know or or if they don't know Jesus to try to bring them to Jesus mm-hmm. is we need to actually get to know them um, right. as soon as someone feels like they're a project or we're just trying to convert them in some way or make them straight or we zero in on their brokenness and we haven't really invested that time and that mm-hmm. relation in developing a relationship with them um, they're going to run for the hills. I mean, they're right. going to think, well, there's that pushy, there's another pushy Christian for you. Um, 
So one of the things that I always encourage um, people is to ask for a person's story. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's one of the things that um, uh, the LGBTQ community has done really, really well is use the power of narrative to sell and 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 really and to really to promote their point of view. And we need to also capitalize on, okay, how has God transformed? my life how has god transformed your life Mm. and not everyone's going to have a a story like gary's or like mine where we've experienced really this amazing rescue all of us have been amazingly rescued Mm -hmm. it's true yes and it may not be in the area of sexual brokenness but i want to learn in my the way i'm going to connect with someone is i want to know their story Mm-hmm. And I want to know if, for example, they're identifying as gay or transgender, how did they come to to figure that out? How did they come to decide that? Right. And then, then the question really comes in, and this is actually more important than even how they're identifying, is what, what do they know about Jesus and what do they think about him? Um, because if they don't, if they don't know Jesus, then that's going to be that's really the the biggest problem. And I think we would all agree um, that salvation, <laughs> you know, in Christ yeah. Yeah. is the number one issue. So I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to not get sidetracked by your cousin or your nieces or your neighbors or your coworkers whatever lifestyle, but first start praying for them to really encounter Christ. Just relate to them as you would any other Mm non-Christian. And, and that may actually be where the church as a whole is, is lacking is that we're not actually interacting with non-Christians in a way that is helpful or that's transformational. We're not, we haven't been willing to do life with people. The way that that Gary and I, um, and I think you would agree with me, really the way that we've been able to grow um, spiritually, relationally, even overcome some of this relational brokenness is through relationship. That's how we're hurt in relationships and we're healed in relationships. And and now we wanna model that uh, for other people. And so, just really focusing on building a relationship with a person. And then over time, that really opens a door. Oh, maybe maybe they actually really care about me. So when I maybe when I run into trouble, mm-hmm. oh, I can go to them maybe for some advice or maybe right. they'll pray for me. You know, who knows? That's great. Yeah, I think, um, Gary, you brought up a great point a minute ago too, that the church's response has oftentimes been, you know, very like, Fundamentalists, like these are the verses mm-hmm. that are addressing homosexuality or um, sexual immorality in general, and this is kind of like this is what we're going to put forth, or it's avoidance altogether. Yep. And I think that um, as a church, we really need to begin to wrestle with our our own theology of sexuality, and I think that that's something that's starting to happen now. But um, historically, that's been sort of a topic that we haven't really addressed in the Western Church. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess uh, my question to both of you is. Where do you start in that process of developing a healthy theology of sexuality? What does that look like? What is the root um, behind that? So instead, we have something, an actual narrative to offer instead of just, here's a verse in Leviticus, like, there's our answer. You know what I mean? Yep. So uh, there are a few things that come to mind and and jump in on in the middle of it. But uh, one thing would be um, recognizing that uh, sexual sexual brokenness or the restoration of sexual wholeness and relational wholeness is is a broad issue mm-hmm. that encompasses you know within the church uh, the and even in in culture the percentage of the population that is LGBT is is very small uh, you're talking. Uh, around 3% or so. It's not the 10% that Kinsey said years ago uh, based on really flawed uh, data. But um, right now it's about 3%. Now, that that may rapidly grow. I don't know. But uh, recognizing that Mm. the real brokenness, the real sexual brokenness is in the heterosexual population. And so can we actually address the, in, the entirety. You know, I find that 
those dealing with same-sex attraction sitting in the church or, or transgenderism and, and, and really feeling gender dysphoria, they're a lot more um, amiable to, uh, to having those issues addressed from the pulpit or from other places in the church or from individuals when they're hearing the broad topic addressed, like the confession about pornography addiction that's rampant in the church amongst right. men, increasing amongst women, often a problem amongst Christian leaders. And so if we can actually talk about the, that in a holistic way, that's much more effective. The other thing is mm. we need it needs to be talked about from the pulpit. There's, there's churches now that have taken, taken a stance that we will never ever even bring up the issue or broach the issue from the pulpit. Right. We want to sit and have coffee with somebody and, and, and engage at that level. Well, I think that that on the one hand, that's admirable. And I understand the, the motivation for doing that. But on the other hand, you leave your entire church population, uh, you know, your church might be 500 people or 200 people or, or 5,000 or 10,000, mm-hmm. but you leave the entire church unaware, like, because we never hear anything about this, I guess we must be pro-gay or we, we must be um, whatever. And, and and so you're not equipping the church. You're not helping mm. individuals to even, individuals could be in the church for years and years on end, mm. never having a moment's conviction uh, that, that just even the question, like a speed bump in their life of, hmm, I wonder if I'm going in the right direction. Right. So that's an issue. And then also, when you're addressing um, the issue of, of sexuality and it's something that the church is engaged in together and in discipling in that arena, then you're, you're talking to your, uh, your high school students, you're talking to the junior high, you're, you're doing it, um, you're, you're bringing in every facet of, of the church context and you're doing something like a Living Waters program or some other program that, that really helps people restore them out of the brokenness that they've gotten into um, and, and, uh, and give them a second chance really at, at uh, at a life of purity, for sure. Yeah. So it's it's a holistic approach. Another thing that we often say hmm. is that it's essential. Like when Revelation says that they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Like we say that sometimes, but where's that second half? You know, where's the testimony? So right. we oftentimes say one of the best things, uh, church pastors will ask me, what's the first thing I should do or what's the, what's the biggest thing I can do to, um, to begin to bring about this conversation in our church? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say is, we say is every Sunday, do a two or three minute uh, video clip of someone's testimony, recovering from substance abuse, recovering from an abortion, recovering from um, bitterness and self-righteousness. Wouldn't that be a nice one to actually hear? And also coming out of sexual brokenness and out of homosexuality, we ought to be hearing these stories all the time because that actually impacts the overall environment of the church and, and approaches it holistically. Yeah, that's good. Well, yeah, I mean, as long as while I have you both here, I, I do have some questions specifically regarding a theology on sexuality and dealing with, with the homosexual issue. Um, so if we wouldn't mind just kind of diving into a few of those. And then, because the church is not saying a whole lot, and I think it would be really awesome to kind of mm-hmm. begin to open up that conversation. So we can't really fully have a conversation on um, sexual identity without talking about gender, um, without talking about Genesis 1 and 2 and what that means. Mm-hmm. So I know that you both... Um, speak about this a lot you both have written extensively on the subject of, of gender identity how how does that work what how do you see um gender in the bible and then how does that kind of address some of the questions that people are asking today about male and female is is that uh um is that the whole story or you know if we could kind of dive into that a little bit that'd be awesome mm-hmm. great yeah so genesis 1 um 26 and 27 you know then God said, let us make man in our image, mm-hmm. um, you know, male and female. He created them. I'm, I'm messing it up a little Wait, bit. You're just leaving out some parts, but that's okay. Yeah, you, <laughs> got, the, you, got, the, you got the bookends. That's right. In his image, he made them male and female. He created them, yes. Right. And so what we see from the very beginning of creation is that, one, God is relational. Mm-hmm. So in the Trinity, mm-hmm. God is... Um, He's in community. Uh, right. Let us make mm-hmm. man in our image, um, male and female. So, and and then we see this duality of of image, which is male and female. And um, again, we don't have probably a lot of time to talk about you know the Hebrew and this and that. But basically, it wasn't incidental that when God said. Um, he created Adam, 
He had created all of the animals and everything. He brought them to Adam to name them, but Adam did not find um, uh, someone suitable for himself. Right. And God said, it is not good that man be alone. And so he caused him to fall asleep. Um, and then he creates woman mm-hmm. out of Adam. And so that is not just mm-hmm. incidental. That was intentional. Um, and so one of our favorite authors, the guy who wrote, uh, who created the Living Waters program, uh, Andrew Kamiski, writes that intimacy is um, inspired by otherness. And so mm. there's something about the complementarity of male and female. So basically that the two are equal, but they're different. Okay. And so, um, and then in that difference, they compensate for um, different, like different strengths and different weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's important though, that we did, he didn't just say, then God created either another man or even just this sort of neuter being, like it didn't matter that they were male and female. So I think it's important to understand that the very image of God is expressed in our gender and how we express that to other people. And so that's really not up for debate if we want to image God in a, wow. in a good way. Yeah, I think that's one of the essential, very foundational realities. When you think about God laying the foundations of the earth and all things coming into being at that time and him speaking them into being and and being very intentional about it as melissa was saying and that we're like when we're when we start messing with who we are as gender beings Mm -hmm. we actually start messing with the reality that we're meant to bear god's image differently melissa bears a different aspect of the image of god than you or i do and uh, and that's intentional and it's good and so what's tragic to me is when when a woman is actually trying or women are and it's understandable that it happens because it's often in response to the abuse of men right. and and misogyny and all of that it's understandable but when when women uh, are are trying to basically be men and and claim that there's no difference no distinction between a woman and a man that's tragic because there is profound distinction and, and the more that she can be the woman that God created her to be and live out that feminine um, aspect of who she is and reflect the image of God that way, the more that a man can do that as a man as well. And of course, one of the things we say is, okay, we can recognize in the church that um, oftentimes that homosexuality or transgenderism, we can recognize that as being a, uh, an aspect of brokenness, or we see that as maybe being um, uh, some steps away from God's intention, intention for us. Mm-hmm. But then what we often say in our teaching is we kind of go to the other side of the stage and say, but what about the guy that's just a gym rat who doesn't know how to connect, connect not that being in the gym is you know, <laughs> in and of itself a bad thing, so yeah, but but the guy that's all about his image, it, and, he's all, and he's hard, like he has no heart or has very little heart uh, he can't make make and commit uh, make and com- um, keep his commitments to uh, a woman in his life or to his children uh, well that's a horrible revelation of the image of God right, in him right yeah. so it's equally as broken and and I don't think we've seen it that way oftentimes so um, yeah so obviously the laying the foundations of gender would be vitally important the other thing I was just having a conversation today we oftentimes hear that Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. And I would say, from my perspective, I think that's completely um, in error because in Matthew 19, Jesus affirms two genders, not thousands. He affirms male and female, and he affirms that uh, marital union between those two genders only. And right. so by by holding that up as God's design, he yes. has, by definition, left everything out of God's design. The fact that we have no other... Um, uh, positive uh, narrative about homosexuality in all of scripture. You know, there, could God not have figured out a way to put that in? Could the Holy Spirit not have figured out how to find an author that would have included those things? Right. Of course, of course that could have happened. So there are many reasons for understanding that um, the God's design is good and it's pure. And also when we take a step back and we look at all of the, the negative Results of us taking sex and sexuality and our identity into our own hands and saying, well, I'll do whatever the heck I want to do with this, mm-hmm. which I did. 
as we do that, I mean, we see, you know, 60 million plus abortions that have happened in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade. We see STDs that have now, I read an article the other day that are saying there's, a, there's another increase happening wow. within um, sexually transmitted diseases and infections. And uh, we see that happening. We see relationships that are broken and people becoming hard and disconnected because they've slept with somebody over, you know, multiple people over and over again, and they've actually damaged that, that part of themselves that God intended to be for that one yeah. as, a, as a vow and commitment for life. So there are so many ways of looking at this and recognizing what we've called freedom as anything but freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when it comes to that gender component, where does the confusion come from? I mean, what you're saying right now has historically been what the church has believed, mm -hmm. what society has believed in general for generations now, and now it seems like, at least openly within public discourse, this is a conversation of, I don't know if this is true or not, and obviously this has, has its roots in um, the sexual revolution as well, but uh, sure. how does one deal with that question of identity um, does that originate in in um, in childhood? Is there is there a nature or nurture component? Mm -hmm. Do those things work together? Good These are question. big questions mm -hmm. that people yes. are asking. So how do you how do you deal with that specific question of gender identity as far as where the questioning comes from? Mm -hmm. Great question. So until recently. The, the consensus was that there, were, there are multiple factors that contribute to a person's gender identity development. And those factors included um, personality and temperament, um, and that would include um, maybe uh, hormone, hormones and, um, yeah, just, I mean, we all know uh, kids are different, right? They, I mean, they kind of come out of the womb um, different and you you just sort of know oh okay this one's either more artistic or this one's more um athletic or whatever and and all of that is good there's nothing wrong but then with that personality and temperament mm -hmm. you start to see the interaction with others in their right. environment so in that case there really is a big influence on nurture okay um so it's personality and temperament it's developmental factors the effect of abuse, mm -hmm. um, whether that's physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. And with the, the breakdown of boundaries around sexuality, with the sexual revolution, the epidemic of what's available at the couple of clicks on the smartphone, mm -hmm. um, even the CDC is saying that children are being exposed um, to more, uh, the most awful stuff that you could possibly imagine um, than at any other point in history. Mm -hmm. um, and the CDC, of all people. Yeah. And so, so you have those kinds of influences. And then now, with the influence of culture, of media, you, you have this influx of messages that it's okay to just be who you want to be. And um, if... If you like a person, then that's fine. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, what gender they are, and and so now, especially among younger um, kids and, and adolescents, we're seeing rapid onset gender dysphoria, where mm -hmm. there's whole groups of kids that are identifying as trans or um, transgender or no gender or or whatever gender non-binary yeah. gender non-binary right and so uh it's more of a um and and here's the thing it's not we are not saying that that those who are experiencing um gender dysphoria which is a discomfort um a distress over their biological gender the gender that they were assigned um, whatever that is. I mean, we're not saying that that distress isn't real. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of compassion. Uh, we both experience distress over mm -hmm. our gender. What we're saying is, can we slow down the conversation and actually help people figure out why they're feeling the way they are before they wind up doing something physically or surgically that they can't undo. 
Right. Especially when no one has studied the long-term effects of some mm -hmm. of these treatments. Right. Um, and some studies are saying that suicidality actually increases after gender reassignment surgery. So I think there's a, a variety of factors that influence gender identity, but I would say um, the breakdown of the family for sure, and so not having present fathers in the home, maybe mothers are working a lot, um, try to provide for their families, and then you have all the media messages. Um, it's just a perfect storm. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, and then how does that uh, contribute to this whole conversation, not only about um, transgender issues, but also about um, LGBT issues? Um, where, where are we going with, uh, you know, like I think a big conversation that's in the church right now is this whole issue of, you know, if are, are you born this way? Is this something that you experience um, through the nurture of your adolescence? Um, how, how does that work? How do you guys address that question because that mm -hmm. is a question that everyone's asking he doesn't seem to really have an extraordinarily good answer for for the most part so do would you mind jumping in on that, on oh, that sure. topic mm -hmm. as well well so one of the things we should point out too is even the american psychological association the apa actually um states uh there's a paragraph that that says basically what melissa just said a moment ago mm -hmm. is that regardless of all of the they don't say it this way but regardless of the studies that have been done the money that's been thrown at trying to prove a gay gene or or some kind of biological component to homosexuality uh, that uh, there are many factors to, to consider and, right. and we don't know how those factors interplay uh, and what factors um, actually influence any one individual to develop same-sex attraction or uh, transgenderism so um, so so they're actually saying this as well what we would say is that uh, a friend of mine once said when he was talking with a, a buddy of his who uh, was was telling him that he um, was gay is and, and, and just wrestling with this whole question about Jesus and how do I come to him and what does this even mean for me? My buddy who doesn't have any of those struggles himself said, you know what, I mean, the good news in that is, and the, and the guy was saying, well, I think I was born this way. And he said, the good news is, is we all need to be born again. <laughs> Every one of us need to be born again. It doesn't matter who we are. And, and so to take, we believe, certainly taking huge sections of our life and saying, Jesus, this is off limits to you. Like, I, I wanted you to be my savior. I mean, I did that when, when I was a kid growing up in church, prayed the sinner's prayer. I mean, I got it down, right? And, and, uh, but, I, but until my early 20s, I never surrendered to the Lord. I really didn't want him to be Lord of my life. And there was a spiritual deadness that remained in my life up until the point that I actually surrendered. And then um, there was a marked difference in, in my life, um, just in, in the witness of the Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. So I... Um, um, I certainly think that the issue of origin is 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 going to be an ongoing discussion. Right. Um, but we've had far too many. We've been running these circles for what fifteen years or so, or maybe mm -hmm. even longer, and and uh, working with organizations that do similar work as us. And we've had hundreds of conversations with individuals. We've had way too many conversations with men and women talking about mm -hmm. their their brokenness. Some of the every single person's story is different from another's, and yet there are some common themes that aren't determinative. Like these themes, these these situations that occurred in childhood don't force anyone to do anything, but they do create the environment in which the seeds of transgenderism, gender dysphoria, uh, and um, uh, homosexuality, or or even the idea of of a, of a man using uh, women to to feel better about himself, and so he's the more women that he can sleep with, the the better in some sense the better he feels even while he's eroding or, or a woman who's doing something similar. We begin to pick up these messages and belief systems very early on. And oftentimes pornography is a huge influencer of that early on in our lives. Right. So, um, so, you know, what we would say is while there are a variety of reasons and issues, there are oftentimes common themes. There's always outliers, but for majority, there seem to be some pretty common themes and those themes need to be explored. Like what we would say is there's a problem that in the mental health field, or um, for those that would be um, pr uh, promoting uh, transgenderism, that uh, a mental health counselor cannot even have a conversation with a person who is f experiencing gender dysphoria to explore their history. 
No, that that is off limits. You cannot do that. You simply have to take at face value that they that they are the wrong that they've been born into the wrong gender and and whatever that they're expressing, you need to simply affirm that and bless them and get them on the road to a transition. That's what it's come down to. Mm-hmm. And so what we would say what's interesting is is we feel like science and medicine is actually on the side of 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 those who would say, "No, what let's wait a minute." Like even if you go through a transition and you change the outer garment, our mm-hmm. skin, you know, and do whatever it is that we need to do, we feel we need to do to to best represent as best we can the other gender. Our chromosomes don't change. Our DNA doesn't change. Mm-hmm. We are still a man or a woman biologically through and through, even though we've changed the outer package. And so um, it, it doesn't even sit well medically and scientifically right. to, to pursue that route and say this is the end of the discussion. Gotcha. Yeah, it's that, I mean, it's really important to kind of begin to dive into those topics because, like I've said, you know, that's not something that we are oftentimes very comfortable with, mm-hmm. especially in the church, kind of addressing some of these big hot-button issues in our, in our culture. Can I mention two other quick things? Absolutely. So uh, there's a book out by the name, uh, written by an author of the name of Ryan T. Anderson. He's okay. a, um, uh, a fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called When Harry Became Sally. And uh, the title sounds a little snarky, and I didn't like that at first when, right. it, when it first came out. But actually, it's written really compassionately, and uh, and, it, and he's writing it from a medical and scientific perspective, not a theological perspective. And mm-hmm. it's all about the tra- transgenderism and the trans moment that we're in. And so, I really would highly recommend his book for that purpose. It's in his book that he's quoting some other figures that would say that even after transition, uh, a person is 19 times more likely to try to commit suicide than the average wow. population. So, so it, that's not. The, the utopia that oftentimes it's, it's made out to be. Another book that I found to be fascinating is written by um, a woman by the name of um, Nancy Piercy, probably Dr. Nancy Piercy, and it's called Love Thy Body. Not my favorite title, but anyway, the book is, is amazing. And I read through it and I thought, where have I been? Like I swim in these waters all the time. And I feel like I, there was so much that she brought out in terms of dualism and Gnosticism and the separation of the personhood from the body. Mm -hmm. And basically the body is completely inconsequential and, and we're moving more and more towards, for example, with abortion, that people are beginning, there's no way scientifically even, but it's amazing, even in the media these days, there's no way scientifically of saying that that is not a human. Like this baby is not a human being. It certainly is, but what's being done now is, there, there's an acquiescence that, okay, we'll give you that, but it's not a person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have personhood at this stage. And so therefore it's of no more value than, it's of even less value than an animal. And so, and, and that's really accomplished through this dualistic Gnosticism uh, that's happening within culture and within, you know, higher education, I would right. say higher education and square quote, uh, scare quotes. But yeah, so anyway, those two books are, are excellent um, eye openers on some of these topics. Awesome. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's great always to, to get some good resources out there. And we'll make sure that we attach some links to some of these books to the, to the podcast. Great. People are able to access those resources. But um, let's talk a minute about, um, about sexual orientation, um, how that's developed, and then as well as uh, kind of bridging the gap of this big question that our culture seems to be asking is, is it possible to be gay and a Christian? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does desire as well as orientation and then action play into that? Um, if you wouldn't mind kind of diving in on that as well. So hmm. I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot no, there. Yeah, there's a lot so, there, but yeah. Staff, honey. So as a counselor, um, the way I approach the idea of orientation is really breaking it down into um, identity, attractions, and behavior. And that's often helpful uh, when I'm working with women who have, they are experiencing um, same sex attractions, same gender attractions, and either, uh, and so they're wondering, am I gay um, Mm. or am I a lesbian or what's going on with me or whatever. And so it, it, it's helpful to just say, okay, we all have attractions. So that would be a desire. We all have attractions for something. So we're, we're specifically addressing romantic, um, or sexual desires for the same gender, or maybe it's both genders. And of course now we're talking about, uh, 
the attempt to say that there are more than two genders. So even as I'm trying to describe it now, there it's morphed. It's morphed, and so even what I'm saying is considered outdated in terms of uh, only saying that there's two genders, but there's only two genders, and um, and so attractions, and so. Who am I romantically attracted to? Who am I sexually attracted to? In other words, who do I experience sexual arousal Mm -hmm. with? And then you have behavior, which is just that. It's sexual acts um, or, yeah, pretty much that. And then looking at at attractions, looking at behavior and experiences, and then also kind of arousal. Um, And I'm just saying clinically, then someone could decide based on attractions and arousal um, that they are oriented one way or the other, or now there's lots of people that don't want to be pinned down um, to being oriented one way or the other. But but it's this idea of really looking at um, the whole picture, right? right? Emotionally, romantically, um, physically, you know, or sexually, uh, what's going on. And so it's a it's complicated, Absolutely. and and um, gender identity development, um, which is part of sexual orientation, is a complicated process, and it happens over a number of years. Really, it starts in infancy and then goes all the way through young adulthood, um, and there's lots of off roads and getting off in the weeds along the way, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, so that's my take on sexual orientation. I don't know mm-hmm. if you want to jump in on the gay Christian. Well, right. So you you'd ask the question about is it possible to be gay and Christian, and what what again it comes down to what is that exactly? I think that we can be in many uh, areas of confusion. So, for example, with me, I went back in homosexuality after a failed marriage of um, only three years, and uh, ultimately four in terms of when the divorce actually happened. And I was bitter and angry with God for not healing my marriage, and I didn't want the divorce and all of that. And so a few years later, a couple of years later, I, um, I I wound up going back into homosexuality. Now, this is after accepting Christ as my Savior and Lord mm-hmm. earlier on before my marriage. And it was a whole new ball game because I wasn't just a religious kid that grew up in a Christian home who was spiritually dead um, and knew that this wasn't the right thing to do. And I, and I felt bad for hurting my mother. But But now I have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of me saying, this is no longer who you are. And, and so I'm going into the bars and I'm connecting with, uh, with men and, and, and I, I was feeling this war going on inside of me, my flesh being pulled in one direction and very much my spirit being pulled in another. And, uh, and so I was miserably addicted is the way I would describe that stage of my, that's that actually long series of, uh, in my life. And, and actually, as I look back at that, I think that there's something oddly comforting about the, about being miserable. Like, I think that when we actually mm-hmm. surrender our lives to Jesus and the Holy Spirit has moved in. He's not just going to, whatever the issue is, whether it's perpetual bitterness and and resentment and unforgiveness, uh, I might be squeaky clean sexually or whatever, uh, just have no interest in that, maybe single for all my life and never really dealt with that. But bitterness and nastiness and and anger and resentment is something I've given my life over to. Well, does that represent someone who's given their life to Jesus? Well, not if they've sold themselves out and they're totally comfortable with that. And so so it really is about lordship. Hmm. Ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, I believe that salvation is, is about surrender. And of course, that surrender, sanctification is a process over time. It's not that we just enter into immediate perfection. It's a process over time, but there's a lordship component to it that Jesus is Lord and I'm going and I'm yielding my life to him. And that, that includes my sexuality, whatever that may be. So whether it's a person who feels um, bent toward or or moved toward um, same-sex attraction or transgenderism or a heterosexual person who is, feels like you know what? I swinging is my thing. I mean, I read an article a few years ago about mm-hmm. um, a, a couple who said that they evangelized through their swinging, their their mm-hmm. sex with multiple partners, and 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 the end of the article, the lament from this person was, "Where is where is our place in the in the church for us as faithful swingers?" Mm-hmm. So, but why not? Why, why isn't that a valid question? If everything else is, is up for grabs, um, why isn't that okay too? Because there's a strong bent or a strong orientation, uh, and orientation is getting applied to everything, including incest. You know, that there's a genetic 
I'm genetic, uh, genetically oriented, and so therefore I'm attracted to my sister or my cousin or my, you know, whoever. And somehow that, by combining orientation to it, that's somehow supposed to be okay. So what we would say is no, the further we get away from the plan of God and the design of God and the revealed will of God, the more and more complicated, the more and more difficult this all gets. And so now we're out here thinking, well, this is so complicated. How, yeah, it's complicated because we have had generation upon generation of doing it our way and saying, God, get out of our face. So coming back to the question, I certainly think that people can can be stumbling and falling and and uh, none of, rarely do any of us lay addictions, especially sexual addiction and relational addiction, just down. Sometimes we break those substance abuse addictions yeah. much more easily. But so certainly a person can, can fall mm-hmm. forward. They might not even know, a person may not even know that there's anything wrong because of what's been said in culture. Maybe they, they're up in, they're, they've grown up in a church that's an affirming church and they don't even know that, hey, this is a problem. But I believe over time that the Lord will reveal that to them and they'll come to a place of recognizing, you know, hey, I need to make some decisions here about this and, and I need to look at the word and the word is really obvious and clear. Yeah. So, uh, so, I, so certainly there's grace for that, of course, but for someone who is sold out, so for the, for the gay Christian movement, we believe that is absolutely a false movement that probably has many people who are wonderfully motivated, yes. but at the end of the day, um, we would see them as false teachers and false prophets who are actually leading people astray. Uh, if we can say that, um, that salvation and, and giving our, and surrendering ourselves to God only deals with God's kindness toward us. And it really doesn't put anything on us. Yes. It's ultimately, he's done it all, but there is a response. There is a yes to him and to his Lordship. And so to leave that out, we feel like that's actually one of the, the false gospel that's false gospels that's going out. That's inoculating people from the true gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's a broader question than just homosexuality. Absolutely. But, um, but we can't assume just because somebody says I'm a gay Christian that they actually know the Lord. And and then there's another category these days of of those that would say that they're celibate gay Christians. And and we would say, you know, probably many brothers and sisters in that camp. And and we're we're thankful that you actually recognize what Scripture teaches about the about sexuality and that you're not you don't believe that that's it's right to engage sexually with the same gender. But there are a number of things that are off in that movement as well. Mm-hmm. Part of it is when we embrace an identity that if we acted on is broken and we marry that to our Christianity, that's fraught with all kinds of problems right there. Right. It also stops mm-hmm. our growth process. Like there's no hope of transformation in this area any longer because I've taken it and I've married it to my Christianity. And there's even something like, I don't understand why the, why we can't simply say like the rest of the Christian population, uh, although they don't, we have a hard time admitting our brokenness. That's right. true. But why can't we simply say, hey, I'm a guy, I'm a gal, and I experience same-sex attraction instead of I'm a gay Christian. Like there's, there's a, a, an, mm-hmm. a, a, long, a longing and a desire to take this uh, identity and somehow be able to hold on to it and merge it with our Christianity and say, I'm going to be forever celibate. But there winds up being some really unhealthy dynamics that go on around that kind of camp and, and line of thinking. And ultimately, at some point, it's pretty easy. We know some people who have been in that camp mm-hmm. who've just said, this is too stinking hard. Like they firmly landed there. They, they said, yep, I'm a celibate gay Christian. And within a couple years, a few years, they're now with Matthew Vines and Justin Lee who say monogamous gay uh, Christianity is totally fine with God. You know, you can, you can have your boyfriend, you can have your husband or your wife as, as a woman and, um, and, and God's totally cool with that. Well, they, that becomes a stepping stone into that place right. because it's too hard to think of never having anything shift trans- in, um, in a transformational way in my identity or in my sexual attraction or my romantic attractions that's never going to shift in my life, apparently. And so therefore, I can't live this way for the, forever. And so what they're uh, espousing looks pretty appealing. So so there's, there are a lot of things kind of fraught uh, difficulties and, and I think errors in that particular movement right now, which is taking the evangelical church by storm, by the way. Totally. Yeah, and you both have experienced transformation, radical yes. transformation in your own lives. Even though we still experience some same-sex attraction. Okay, so it's, yep. it doesn't rule our lives anymore, but but we still experience some of that. That do, what in what other area of life do we use that as a litmus test for transformation? Right, that the desire for whatever is completely gone, a hundred percent. Like that, it has to be perfection. And so, what we're really encouraging the church is to be open and honest and vulnerable yes. and transparent yeah. about your brokenness, whatever that is but especially sexual brokenness because there's been so much shame about it. And so if we can get real, then we can actually experience Jesus. And that becomes attractive. 
like people in the world, they, they sniff the BS. Like, people that grow up in Christian homes and they see one person at home and then one person at the church wondering, who in the world are you? You know, mm-hmm. you weren't, you were just screaming your head off as we're going out the door or there's all kinds of difficulties in the church or I found your stash of porn in the closet uh, when I was, you know, 10 years old or eight years old or whatever. And you're here raising your hand on, hands on Sunday morning. And, and I see, I see two very different people, you mm-hmm. know, as my dad or my mom or whoever. And, and, and we begin to get completely disenchanted with what is this life supposed to, this Christian life supposed to be about? Right. So the more that we can live authentically and where, where every man follower of Jesus Christ has a band of brothers who knows everything about them, every woman has a band of sisters who knows everything mm-hmm. about her right. and they're doing life together, um, that is the normal Christian mm-hmm. life. And we see that almost to be non-existent in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you, you named your ministry Love and Truth Network. And I think, how, how, how do you walk a person who is in a place of sexual brokenness and struggling into a place of relational and sexual wholeness? What's that journey like? And how can the church be better at walking someone through that whole process? I think it, it, it's quite a process. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to understand that. And that's true, again, for lots of issues, um, but it's going to take some time. And so we have to surround that person with a community. And mm-hmm. so it's usually not good for it to just be one person right. because one, it's exhausting, and two, there can be issues with dependency, emotional dependency yeah. or codependency. And so usually two or three others that are willing to do life with that person. And then depending on what the issues are, um, try to get them into a 20 week healing program Mm -hmm. like Living Waters, or if there's a lot of trauma, maybe some professional Christian counseling, and then really just walking with them in that process. And the church is God's, it's really our second chance at family Mm -hmm. and so uh yeah so i think just having groups of people that are willing to do life with each other is the place to start and the more that we model and we've kind of already said this earlier but the more that we along with everything that melissa just said the more that we are able as the body of christ to model what what life has looked like before Mm -hmm. jesus Mm -hmm. uh, the the messiness of even what life has looked like after after jesus and what he's you know what he's freed us from what he's still working on uh, the more that we can just kind of talk about that, um, that everyone is, is willing to come to the table and be known. Uh, we, not everybody has to parade themselves across the stage and, and spill everything. We're not talking about that. But there should be, in, in, in every church, honestly, and it's rare, uh, in every church there ought to be a level of transparency uh, that, um, like, there's, we, we, we can never be loved fully until we're known fully. Yeah. And so, because always in the back of our mind, it is mm-hmm. if they only knew you, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. Or if they only knew this about you. And so, no matter how much love is coming toward us, uh, it, it's very easy for the enemy to pull the rug right out from under that. And, and it just runs right through like a bucket it, uh, with no bottom in it. It just runs right through us. And, and we don't recognize that part of the, a big part of why that is, is because we're not fully known. When I said that I came out of a long history of homosexuality, and it ain't because I didn't know. I mean, you know, they, right? I mean, these guys had some clue, but but they didn't they didn't harass me about it. They didn't bug me about it. But when I named it for myself, I was able to say the words myself. When I talked about pornography addiction, and these guys came around, and the leader pulled me out of my seat and gave me this big hug, and guys stood in the line behind him to do the same thing, and they didn't like do this kind of thing. I'd never seen them do it before or since then. Um, but when they did that. And they knew. And then the next Sunday, like some of these guys came up. I thought for sure the next Sunday they're going to be like, ooh, you know, there's Gary. Let's walk to their side of the street kind of thing, you know. And instead, they're making a beeline toward me and putting their arm around me and hugging me. Like, now I could finally feel love. They could have done the exact same thing. If I hadn't told them, they could have come up to me and hugged me. But without them knowing my own brokenness... Um, I wasn't able to experience the depth of being loved fully. So so that's huge, I think, in terms of uh, why we should be motivated, part of the motivation for really embracing transparency in the church and then modeling. Like, we can talk all day long, but it's really modeling that speaks to kids the most and speaks to brand new people coming in the most. So people come to Jesus broken, and then they come into our um, into our Christian environments thinking, oh my gosh, everybody has it together, and so I've got I've to pretend that I do too. Right. And they don't realize, well, everybody else is pretending too. Mm-hmm. So, 
Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for, for being here. Is there anything else that you'd like to bring up before we wrap up today? Well, so one thing I would just say is you had asked about the ministry. And so, you know, we, uh, Melissa and I travel quite a bit in the summertime together. We actually take our boys with us and go back to the Northeast. And we, we speak, well, last year we spoke in 16 churches in nine different states. And, but during the year, because we homeschool and Melissa counsels, I do the majority of the travel. But we, we uh, speak and teach. I preach oftentimes. Melissa does too at times. And whether we do conferences. But one of our favorite things to do is sit down and do leadership team meetings. Like mm-hmm. to gather the leadership mm-hmm. team of a church together and sit around a round table and just have discussion about some of these issues, do Q&A, spend a lot of time together and begin to crack open the conversation that hopefully will go on for some time and we'll be able to be introduced in other aspects and pockets of their church. So that's what our ministry exists for is, and it's national, we're based here in the, in the Phoenix, Arizona area, but it's a national uh, ministry that really wants to help equip the church on how to be effective in these areas. And the good news is, in, in all of the darkness around us, the church has this amazing opportunity to prepare herself uh, to to actually receive a harvest of souls who later realize that, you know what, this whole sexual freedom thing ain't what I signed up for. This right. is not what I thought it was going to be. And I'm broken. I have STDs. I'm, I'm a, a, a trans person who recognizes I should have never transitioned in the first place. I want to come back to who I was. But now I have no breasts or I have no penis. And now what do I do? You know, and the church needs to be a safe refuge for that person who mm-hmm. wants to come back and find Jesus. But they your average church doesn't know what to do, have a clue of what to do with a person like that. So how do we how do we engage that? And the beauty of it is, if a church will actually work on engaging um, folks out of the LGBT arena and out of sexual brokenness, the beauty of that is, is they extend their influence, they extend their ability to minister to everyone in all walks of life into that area. You know, so, right. so, so the church becomes more effective in every other area of ministry by doing that. That's awesome. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I look forward to our next conversation. And uh, yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. Be sure to check out loveandtruthnetwork.com. Is that right? Uh, Yes, loveandtruthnetwork.com. In order to find more resources from Gary and Melissa Ingram. Thank you so much. This has been a production of Living Streams Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you like what you heard, please visit us at livingstreams.org and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.